Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, 27 to 52. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here and pray. And he took James, Peter, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Thank you, guys. You know, like most young children, I found myself at a young age really drawn to superhuman figures. I wanted to identify with people like Superman who didn't have the human limitations that every other person that he ran into seemed to suffer from. I wanted to be like Peter Pan, I mean, who didn't, or Robin Hood who who wanted to be the one to balance the scales, to bring justice where there was injustice, and throw in Maid Marian just to ice the cake. I, I grew up watching every Saturday morning American Gladiators. It was a staple in my household growing up with me and my older brother every Saturday morning to watch these uh, superhuman phenoms 
who a good spray tan and a very diligent steroid regiment were removed from the rest of society and us mere mortals. In Sunday school, the, the teachers, they kind of withheld the bits about David's broken marriage or divided family or his senseless murder that he committed. And instead, they just emphasized the other areas. So I wanted to be like David. I wanted to be brave when other people cowered. I wanted to be full of faith, faith when others were paralyzed by their fear. I wanted to rescue others from the evil tyranny that seemed to loom as, as a near-arriving reality. And all of that with just a slingshot and a couple of stones that you could find in your own backyard, like a, a slingshot that I could find, you know, a couple of rocks, and I could all of a sudden embody David. I was just naturally, like many of you probably, drawn to superhumanness in these individuals that seemingly were untouched by the parts of human existence that all of us are shackled to, that all of the rest of us really want to avoid but can't find a way to avoid. But I'll tell you, as I've gotten older and after living some life and after facing heartache and sorrow, after seasons even for me personally of depression and grief, I'm really no longer drawn to those who seem to possess the superhumanness that once used to leave me awestruck. Instead, I've often found myself coming to appreciate and even to long for the opposite, to long to be with people who weren't just able to escape from the harsh realities of life, but who had been touched and struck by the same hardship that I have faced. I find myself almost drawn the opposite direction of what I once was enamored with. Rather than superhumanness and, and a, a, an ability to be out from under what me, we me, mere mortals face, it's that I'm looking for normal humanness. I'm looking for someone who's just been human and struck with the kinds of things that have deeply wounded me as well. And in the end, I found really that I just want to sit with the one that we just read about. I want to just sit with the one that really was the God who was crushed. In all of ancient mythology and every other religion, there's no God like this the God who became crushed for us. You see, this is who we find soaking the floors of Gethsemane in his own tears. We see his humanity on display. It's not some superhuman figure we find in this moment who's freed from the entrapments and the sorrows and the pains and the limitations that the rest of us are so susceptible to. No, Jesus would embrace the human experience so completely that he experienced all of its sorrows that come with it. And when you've suffered, you find that you just don't search any longer for Superman or any other figure who's isolated from life's sorrows and from hardship. Instead, we long to sit with those who suffered through those griefs with us. And that's who you find on the floors of Gethsemane, soaking its floors in tears. We find the one who the, the prophets had foretold to us that he'd be the one who would be called despised and face rejection. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest forms of grief. That's how Isaiah wrote about him. He's the one the writer of Hebrews would say that he offered up specific requests and urgent pleas with loud cries and many tears. And this is the moment when that's happening. We're getting a look into this happening and the life of the one that we know as God who came down to be among us. You know, a few years ago, I had a stretch of time that was just plagued by severe depression and deep sorrow. And for me, I hurt more and deeper in that stretch of a handful of months than I, than I had ever thought or conceived possible. It was it was something I'd never, ever wish on anyone or ever want to relive. It, it was the season where I felt that as though others had hurt me. I, I felt as though life, just life itself, had left me hurt. I felt even in moments as if God himself had hurt me. I went from not having a good cry in over 10 years, which is not a healthy thing, to finding myself sobbing for over two months every day in moments that were not planned and at times, for lengths of time, that were really not controllable. It was unnerving how broken I found myself. I felt alone in ways that I still don't really know how to put into words. I screamed myself hoarse in those moments, as embarrassing as that may be, while every time it seemed that I got alone. I counted more hours for months on a clock at night where I felt awake than asleep. And for me, during that season, there were more involuntary tears shed in that stretch of time than I really thought were humanly possible. And I know that for so many of you, you've had stretches in your life like this. 
In fact, I've learned that sorrow is so, it's so stupid, so foolish, if we try to compare our grief against someone else's or our hardship against someone else's because sorrow is sorrow and hardship is hardship. It's, in a sense, it's relative. What, what's hurt you and harmed you might look different than maybe what caused me to feel the way that I did for so long, but it doesn't make one less or more valid. The truth is just that for many of us, we've had hard seasons like this where you've hurt so deeply too. But the two greatest things you'd probably agree with me that I found in a season like that, the first is this, is that I found that the people who could look me in the eye and put an arm around me and comfort me with the comfort that they had received from God, which meant that they had hurt deeply too, that that was an incredible gift in a season like that. You see, if you're a person that's deeply suffered, then there's something really very unique that you can give to someone else when they suffer because you can do what I just said. You can look them in the eyes and they can see your hurt and feel understood and safe. And they can see your healing and begin to feel hopeful too. You see, I hope you realize that you have incredible value if you're a person who suffered because you're rich with the currency really that everyone needs but no one's interested in earning. You've suffered and allowed God to comfort you. The comfort and what it gives to a person, it's a precious currency that you can't buy unless you pay for it in personal loss and pain. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it puts it this way. It says, the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, think about this, the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort someone else with the comfort with which we've received from God himself. You become, if you're a person who's hurt, the answer to someone else's prayer. You become a gift to them in their season of suffering. If you've suffered before, you'd probably agree with me. The two greatest things God gives you is a person who can sit with you in your pain, who knows what it's like. But the second thing it gives, or that's given to you, or at least for me, was this garden, was this story. And that season where I hurt, unlike any other season before, This story, this moment in history was such a gift that God gave me that my mind went back to probably almost daily during that stretch of time. Because Gethsemane is the place where Jesus' humanity is seen so clearly where he is seemingly just emotionally distressed and mentally confused even and spiritually overwhelmed, no doubt. Scholar Bill Lane, he wrote about this moment in Gethsemane saying that Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, for a break, for some rest is the idea. But here's what he says. He says, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and Jesus staggered. You see, Mark vividly paints the picture and sets the scene for us. Upon entering the garden, it tells you in verse 33 that Jesus will leave eight of the 11 guys at the gate of the garden and he'll have three follow him inside. And then he leaves those three, he says in Luke's gospel, I believe, about a stone's throw away from where he'd go. They're within earshot. They can still see him as he begins to pray. And typically in that culture, you'd stand with arms outstretched to pray. But instead, it tells us here that Jesus is found having crumbled to the floor. He's collapsed. And he makes a a request there to his friends that they would pray with him and for him. And three different times, not only will Jesus pray the same thing three times, but three times he'll go to his friends and ask them to pray with and for him, but find them asleep. And in Luke's gospel, it says that they're sleeping from sorrow. Seems like it's the first moment in time where the guys are finally starting to get it where it sunk in for them. Remember, around a table, just in the same evening, just hours before, Jesus had lifted a piece of bread and said, this is my body that's broken for you. He lifted a cup and said, this is my blood that's going to be shed for you. It's finally settling in, and it's wiping not just Jesus out, but them with him. Picture the scene. The Passover celebration has meant that the city is overrun. The meal is finished. A meal that's in commemoration and also in anticipation. Commemoration in God delivering them from Egypt. Anticipation of God delivering them once and for all from all of their captors and every oppressor. And in the middle of the night, remember Passover, it falls on the lunar calendar with a full moon above. Jesus and his friends are making their way through the city And down through a cold night, because they're warming themselves around a fire later in the story, you follow the light of a half dozen torches as they leave the city of Jerusalem, go down the East Valley across the brook Kidron, which is interesting. It's the place that King David, when David was rejected, that he would flee with barely the shirt on his back. The rightful king would leave sorrowful 
departing because of his rejection, departing because he, he was told that he didn't belong. Now Jesus, the descendant of David, the rightful king, leaves the same way onto the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives, sits the Garden of Gethsemane with a view of the temple above him, looking through the east gate, watching smoke rise as the sacrifices were being made of the lambs at Passover to cover the sin of every home and every family in the nation of Israel. The little brook that they crossed over, the Kidron, it was filled with blood and water as the priests were washing the top of the altar off with gallon after gallon of water to wash the blood down that would then flow down from the Temple Mount along the Kidron. And as Jesus' feet would have crossed the brook, no doubt he knew soon he the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world his own blood would be spilt Jesus entered the garden of Gethsemane not to hide from death but to prepare for it he went there to pray and Luke's gospel tells us it's a place he often went to pray Gethsemane's two Hebrew words Geshmani pressed together they literally are oil pressed those two words Gethsemane, on the base of the Mount of Olives, was the place where the oil press was situated, where first olives would be brought and be crushed under the weight of a millstone, and then those crushed olives and seeds would be put into baskets that would function like a filter, and the baskets would be stacked up one on top of another, and that first bit of oil that would seep out just from the weight of the olives themselves was the first of three presses that the olives would receive. And that first press would be called the extra virgin olive oil. Latin virgin means stone. It's without the weight of a stone uh, pushing and extracting uh, the, the, the oil from the olives. That was the first press, and that would be used in the temple of God. But then there would be a second press with the weight of stones being added to, to try to extract all the oil from those olives that had been crushed. That second one would be used inside of homes throughout the nation for cooking, but then a third pressing that would be used then, now with the oil being far less pure, that would be used even just to light the lamps in homes all throughout the nation. Three times they'd press, so there was nothing left to give, nothing left to be extracted. There was never a fourth pressing of the olives, just as you find in the story three times, Jesus will cry out for this cup to pass from before him. Where he's weary, it says, unto death. Where there's nothing left to give, nothing left to be extracted. The prophet Isaiah had rightly foretold and answered the why of this moment some 700 years before in Isaiah 53 when he said it this way. He says that he will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest of griefs. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed down on him. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed there for our sins. The gravity of what's coming is beginning to be felt by Jesus. The weight of our sin is beginning to crush him. It wasn't Satan and his minions who came here assaulting and afflicting Jesus in this moment. It wasn't even just merely fear for Jesus looming of, of what was ahead of him. No, the feeling and experience of Jesus taking our sin and our punishment upon himself is what he's feeling in this moment. It's the shame and remorse that we felt before. It's the sorrow and grief that comes with it. Even beginning to sense the isolation and separation that sin causes each one of us, soon Jesus will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the shadow of that moment is looming over this tranquil garden. The great preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way. He said, surely the agony in Gethsemane was part of the great burden that was already resting upon him as his people substitute. It was that or this that pressed his spirit down even into the dust of death. He was to bear the full weight of it upon the cross, but I am persuaded that the passion began in Gethsemane. In the Gospels, we see Jesus moved often with compassion. We see him even filled with sorrow, but this moment in the garden is different. He wasn't feeling things as he had felt them before. This is so severe, this particular experience of sorrow and grief, that it says here that it almost kills him. 
This is so severe that the Bible says it evoked out of him loud cries and tears, so severe that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. Within just hours, he'll be mocked and flogged, beaten, pierced, and crucified as an innocent man and undoubtedly as our substitute. And the worst of it would be that he would take upon himself our brokenness, that he himself would embody our sin. We're told that Jesus' experience in agony was so intense in Gethsemane that it's described as almost being unto death. He was convinced as if just a little bit more sorrow and it would have wiped him out. And the place called Gethsemane, the the place of pressing, the, the place of crushing, Jesus himself was nearly crushed under the weight of my sin and yours that was laid upon his shoulders. No nerd rant today, but theologically speaking, there's there's a nerdy thing happening here that theologians still ponder, where part of what it says in verse 33 is that Jesus was both distressed and troubled. It's something that theologians still talk about today, because the word distressed is an interesting word. It's a compound form form of the verb to be amazed, that Jesus was amazed. What could amaze Jesus? He's omniscient. He knows absolutely everything. How is something going to stun him or shock him? Is there anything that, that, that he's, he's not yet known? Is, is there any experience he's never had? Is there anything he doesn't know? The answer seemingly in this moment is yes. He's experiencing something in this moment that's totally foreign to everything he's ever experienced or known before this. The word troubled means to be anguished to a level that was too much to handle, that was incomprehensible. Worse than Jesus being rejected by the Jewish people. We wonder, was it the the defection of Judas? Was it the desertion of the other 11 that will soon happen? Was it the injustice that would take place? Is it the mockery and the ridicule? What, What was it? Was it the spitting, the punching, the beatings, the abuse? Was it the crucifixion itself? It was more than all of those things. It's something far deeper than those things. It was an anguish, a trouble far beyond that. It's the anticipation of becoming the sacrifice for sin, to become sin's bearer and judgment taker. That's what he's doing for us. How severe was it? Well, Luke 22, 44 says it this way, and I quote, the struggle was so immense, the stress on his physical form was so great that he began to sweat drops of blood. There's a clinical term for this, a medical term. It's hematridosis. Under immense stress, the capillaries gorge, inflate, and explode, and blood begins to emerge out of your sweat glands. It's described as a tremendously painful phenomenon that only happens at the maximum point and level of human stress. And that is what Jesus is under. Luke's gospel says he falls to the ground and began to pray, if it's possible that the hour might pass from him, And Luke's gospel says in that moment, heaven itself dispatched an angel, and that angel came to sit with Jesus and minister to him. My friends, this is such an important story that clearly God highly values and wants all of us to take note of because it's one of few stories that all four gospels tell us, in fact, in such vivid detail. It's also one of few stories that are even foretold by the ancient prophets of old. Isaiah himself, if you read what he wrote of this moment, you'd be convinced that he knelt next to Jesus on the floors of Gethsemane and wrote it all out in the moment, although it was written 700 years beforehand. It's something not just the prophets of old, but even the New Testament epistles will reference. It's something even that stretches from the Garden of Eden to the future garden we call paradise are all found in this moment. So if it's important, four things, just four simple things, I want us as a church to process this morning together. The first is this, is that Gethsemane displays Jesus' humanity. Maybe this feels so very simple, and it is, but it's so important. The first is this, that Gethsemane displays Jesus' humanity. This garden, this moment, is the greatest depiction and reminder of Jesus' humanity we find anywhere in Scripture. 
You see, as a follower of Jesus, I believe that he is uniquely fully God and yet simultaneously fully man. It's something early in church history that the early church fathers gathered together and gave a title for. They call it the hypostatic union, the Latin hyposis or hyposis. The idea is substance, that there's a union of substance within Jesus that's so unique and different from anyone else who's ever walked the earth that he's fully God and yet fully a man within that one existence. My friends, Jesus needed to be divine because mere men were born with a broken, sinful, fallen nature so we could never live out a life in perfection as a son and daughter of Adam and Eve. We could never become our own substitute. He could never become our substitute if he, like we, had that broken, sinful, fallen nature. So he must be divine, but he also had to be human because he needed to live in perfection as a man and die as a substitute for mankind. If he were merely God, he would not have been able to endure the punishment and judgment that mankind has earned and deserved. But in this moment, isn't it amazing that early in the gospel records, we see flashes of Jesus' deity bursting through his humanity. But the time has drawn where we're nearing the gospel's end And the one that we've become convinced is God among us is now soaking the paths of Gethsemane in his own tears. And it's no longer the shock and surprise of Jesus' deity that makes us turn and gaze and wonder. Instead, it's the frailty of Jesus' humanity that makes us turn our heads with mouths open and begin to question how and why. Gethsemane displays Jesus' humanity, and he needed to be a human theologically, but he also needed to be one practically. It displays his humanity. The second thing this moment does for us is Gethsemane reveals Jesus' sympathy. It displays his humanity, but it reveals his sympathy. You should know this. The the humanity of Jesus enables him to relate to us in a super powerful way. A crazy powerful way. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, he begins to write about the position of a high priest. And a high priest's role was to represent God to man, but simultaneously to represent man back to God. And Jesus would take the form of the high priest, and the writer of Hebrews would say it this way. He would say, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet he without sin. We don't have a high priest in Jesus who's unable to sympathize with us. The word sympathize in the Greek language literally is translated to suffer with us. We don't have someone who's heaven's representative to us, who represents humanity for us back to heaven. We don't have someone who doesn't suffer. We have someone who suffers with us, who cares for us. In our modern culture, unfortunately, this term sympathy I think has been robbed of its power because we can say to someone or of someone when they're suffering, oh, they have my sympathy. Please send my condolences or my sympathy to them. But to send your sympathy doesn't mean that they really have your attention or your care. It doesn't imply that you're motivated to do anything for them. We can think of it almost as an empty gesture or even an empty feeling that's disconnected from real action or actual care. But that's not what's being said here. It's saying instead that God shudders with us, cares deeply for us, even is driven into action to rescue us. Only a human could sympathize and suffer with our weakness and temptations. Jesus, as a human, was subjected to all the same hurts and trials and temptations that we were. For Jesus, he was tempted. He was persecuted, betrayed. Jesus was homeless, despised, abandoned, misunderstood, and rejected. He'd suffer physical pain. He'd endure the sorrows of of an incredibly cruel death and even felt the shame connected to our sinfulness, our brokenness. Only a human being could experience these things, and only a human being could fully understand them through that experience. You see, this moment teaches me that God understands. It reveals Jesus' sympathy, that he suffers with us. We're confident that Jesus knows our weakness, not because of his patience with the disciples' sleepiness that night, but because God himself became acquainted with our weakness because God walked not just among us, but in our shoes. 
And my friends, if you've ever felt frustrated or questioned God's connections to your feelings or your pressures or your pains, then please hear me say and see it in the story that our perception of God, of how he thinks and what he feels dramatically changes because of this garden. Because we find Jesus on the floors of Gethsemane crushed and overcome with sorrow to the point where he's saying, I might not make it out of here. I might not get up again. This might be the end for me. Gethsemane takes the God we needed to be big enough to hold the universe in the span of his hand, as the prophet has said, that he's so big, so powerful, so capable. We need him to be that, but we need more than that. Gethsemane takes the God who's that big, that powerful, that capable, and makes him small enough to place his arm around us when we too are pressed and crushed and to gently whisper in those moments, I understand. In our suffering and grief, our grief never takes us anywhere that God cannot take us through. We know that this is true. The scriptures tell us he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. But for many of us, we've also learned that he meets us in those dark valleys. God's joining us on our knees in the dust of Gethsemane, the place of pressure and crushing. And that's when in this moment, what we see when we look the direction of a God that sometimes we accuse of being disconnected and disinterested, when we look his direction, we see tears on his cheeks. We hear a voice that's trembling. This is the place where God whispers our direction in a gentle voice and simply says, my son, my daughter, I know. Think of how the saints of old longed for the promise of Gethsemane. How they longed to hear that gentle whisper that echoes from this garden. Think how Joseph had longed to hear from God, I understand. He's up against injustice and betrayal. He's hated without a cause. Facing all of it without the promise of of this garden, the echo that comes from it. King David, he longed to hear it, to hear what echoes from this garden, the gentle promise, I understand. When he was misunderstood and rejected and alone, it's Job who longed to hear Gethsemane's whisper. When he lost everything and cried out for a mediator, in Job 9, he starts to say, he's not a mere man that I can walk with him or he can pass by in front of me. I don't understand him is what he's saying and he doesn't understand me. And then he says, I wish, Job 9, 33 and 34, I wish that there'd be one who'd be a mediator to place his hand on him, God, and a hand on me and bring us together. Can't we have a meeting of the minds? Can't someone pull us in close because we're so far removed? I need a mediator, he said. And First Timothy would answer that cry and say, For there's one God and one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. And soon Jesus will go to a cross where he'll be suspended between heaven and earth itself, connecting once and for all God with man again. And in this moment in Gethsemane, that connection he's building is not just judicial. Are you seeing it's deeply personal? Because this garden is the place that we hear him whisper. Joseph, David, Job. Trevor, I understand. And because the whisper comes from Gethsemane, we know that we also hear from this lonely garden the gentle promise, that certain promise that I care. For we find him there in the garden because he's willing to be crushed for our iniquity as our substitute because he loved us. When Jesus came... He became the visible expression of an invisible God. That's what scripture teaches us. But when Jesus suffered, he not only paved the way for me to be forgiven and accepted by God, but he also proved that he understands me and draws near to me in my pain. Gethsemane, this garden, demonstrates that more clearly than any other place in scripture. Every other religion is just trying to get a distant God to notice you, but not Christianity. God came so near, he suffered for you. God remains so near, scripture teaches us, that he still remains with us to suffer with us. My friends, we need to marvel 
at the beauty and power of this reality of a gracious and wonderful God who sat on the floor washing it with his own tears, who would not hide himself from any human suffering, from any form of sorrow, but would embrace it in totality so that we could have a confidence that he understands and is capable of rescuing us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares about what happens to you. This moment, it, it displays Jesus' humanity. It reveals his deep sympathy, the fact that he suffers with you. But very quickly, a third thing that I think is important is that Gethsemane also opens the door for intimacy. Gethsemane opens a door for intimacy, for deep connection, for real depth of relationship. You see, we don't just see Jesus' connection with you in this garden. We're invited to uniquely, I believe, connect with him in this moment. This moment doesn't just bring Jesus near to me. I think it invites me to draw near to him. You see, we can be crushed too under the weight of reality or through the strain of, of life and anxiety and the pressure of uncertainty. And in those moments, you and I have the choice and ability to connect with Jesus and to connect with this moment by praying like he did. Yes, in honesty and vulnerability, saying that this is not what I want. Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from before me. But by faith he finished, not my will, yours be done. The cup, all throughout the Old Testament, is this picture, a symbol in the Old Testament for divine wrath, the cup of judgment. Again and again, it's Psalm 1, or I'm sorry, Psalm 11, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 50, uh, 51, I already said that one, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29, Lamentations 4. All throughout the Old Testament, the cup is a portrait of divine wrath and judgment. When he's saying, take this from me, he's beginning to feel what it's like to be the object of divine wrath so that we could have our identity shifted to divine sons and daughters. And as he's feeling that, he's saying, is there any other way we can do this? Would you be willing to take this from me? But then by faith saying, not my will, yours be done. Nevertheless, that's the moment. That's the hinge point, isn't it? When Jesus will say a nevertheless, it goes from just vulnerability and honesty with his father to then obedience and faith in his father to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And my friends, there are things in our lives that will undoubtedly happen, or maybe for some of us already have happened, that we won't want, that we won't like, that we won't have answers for even. And you and I will be left with the choice in those moments. Do we take matters into our own hands, or are we willing to choose to trust him? And I realize it's very, very easy to say, and it's so very difficult to do. But if I'm honest, my choice and tendency is to look for opportunity to change my environment rather than allow him to change me. Change of environment, unfortunately, doesn't serve me in the long run because I will try through escapism constantly to hide out from hardship, adversity, and pain, and I will unsuccessfully do so. I will forever live as a fugitive on the run from a reality that cannot be escaped in humanity. I will never be satisfied or settled if that's how I live. But if I'm willing instead, not just to try to change my environment, but allow him by faith to say, not my will, yours be done, for him to do the deep work in my life that can come through my human suffering, then all of a sudden something beautiful can begin to take place. Where my suffering can give me quite possibly more than it costs me. Because we think that suffering, suffering loss, makes us less. Suffering loss, like the Grinch, causes the heart to grow. It doesn't have to make it turn into stone. But only if faith is a part of the equation. I mean, notice here in the story that even for Jesus, his prayers weren't answered in the time or in the way that he had hoped. Nor was that true for Joseph. Nor was that true for King David, but look at what the father accomplished by doing things his way instead of Joseph, David, Jesus, or even my way. 
Trust him enough to pray, not my will. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. Because when Joseph became settled, God used his pain to preserve a nation through a famine. Because he was in Egypt and in a position of prominence, because of his faithfulness to his God and refusing to reject him even when he had been rejected in every way, shape, and form. It didn't just preserve a nation, but coming from that nation would be the savior of the world, the Messiah. It's David who would be appointed as the king, anointed as the king of Israel, as just a teenager, but then finally would be coronated and crowned as king much later in life. And in that period of waiting, he had to trust God for provision and protection for himself. And he learned that God would be faithful to do that for him. And so he learned that he could trust him for provision and protection for an entire nation. He was He was anointed king as a young teenager. He was crowned the king as a warrior and a man who believed God. For God, the journey is clearly as important as the destination because it's in the journey that God makes the man. You see, please listen. If we aren't willing to surrender, then I think it's possible that our prayers are quite possibly nothing more than superstitious practice. We have to be willing to say it with Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. Jesus, he cries out in the moment, Abba, Father. He uses the child's name for his father, Dad, Daddy. Not not, not Father in this formal sense, in some positional reality. No, Daddy in an affectionate, caring voice. The, the, The name a child would use in his home to address his father. He has a confidence even in a dark moment like this, that he's a son who's loved, so he cries out to his dad. There's trust in that moment. My friends, I won't be able to pray this way until I agree and believe by faith that God knows better than I do. To pray and to say, I trust you more than I trust myself, more than I trust my best effort to figure things out. And I will lack the confidence in God to pray those things until I see him as my father. He didn't just father the world through creation. He dispels my fears as a dad who's present with me. We're able to join in with Jesus and pray, not my will, but yours be done, because we're talking to our father, our dad, the one who loves us, who's not some unjust judge out to get us, or not some disconnected being who doesn't understand us. He is the God who lived and bled and died among us and for us. This moment, it invites you to do something to come up next to Jesus and kneel with him, to be raw and real, vulnerable and honest for sure, to express your heart, but to do more than that, to give the nevertheless moment, to finish in faith. And you can do that if you're secure in your identity, that you know that I have a father who's committed to me. I have a dad that's trustworthy. God, I'm looking your direction, not disconnected, but proving how near you've been to me. And so I can echo what Jesus said and say, nevertheless, not my will, yours be done because I can trust you. Gethsemane, this story, this means so very much to me personally. Because it tells me that I can be connected to the God who was crushed. Who's so sorrowful that he thought he might die. So overcome that he crumbles to the floor. So human he needed the presence of friends. So wiped out he begged the father to stop this. He's neither frozen to emotion in this moment where he wouldn't feel these things. He's neither frozen by his emotions where he's controlled by them. No, instead he confidently took those emotions to his father. And the story invites us to do the same and to do it with faith that says, nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. This garden is actually my favorite place in Israel to visit. So special. There's something about connecting with the humanity of Jesus to sit in that garden, to think about God coming among us. There's no pixie dust or fairies flying around, but there's the reality that that God understands my suffering, my pain, because he went to the place of crushing to be crushed for me. It's an incredible place. I'd love to take you there. I can't today, but if I did, I'd do what I've done with groups in the past where I've told them, when no one's looking, steal a leaf off of an olive tree (laughs) and write on the back of it, 
So we got a cheap olive tree instead of expensive flights. Maybe the expensive flights are in our future, but grab a little leaf today and on the back of it, write a little note. It's maybe just a name even that you'd write or today's date. For me, I have them all throughout my Bible from all the trips I've taken in Israel. All these little leaves taken from trees there that are little statements in moments where I remembered sitting in Gethsemane, where we sit today together, where, where I was remembering that you're not just a God who's there, you're a God who came here and deeply understands and loves me, who's deeply committed to me. So what's overwhelming? What's too much? What's too difficult? What's too discouraging? What's weighing on you? What's crushing you today? You might grab a leaf and, and write a thing. You might grab a leaf and write a name. It might even be a crisis, or it might just be simply you write the word uncertainty. But Jesus, I think, invites us as his people to meet him in this moment, in this place, and to echo what he said, that I choose to trust you. And we choose to trust him because we remember and celebrate this morning the real reason why we trust him, communion, a cross, suffering that begins here but ends on a cross there. That is why we trust him. You know, before we move on, there's one final thing I'll tell you, but before we get there, I just want you to notice one thing about Jesus' humanity in this story, and that's in his hour of desperation and need, he also solicited the help of and care of some of his friends. He called his closest friends to be with him, to pray for him, to comfort him when he felt this crushing pressure. And if Jesus didn't feel bad being human enough to call on others for help, comfort, and prayer, even to wake them up multiple times, then I shouldn't either. And if Jesus needed the care and companionship of them being with him, then maybe you and I actually might need each other, which invites us then, don't carry your pressure, your pain, your hurts, your doubts, your heartache alone. The church, other followers of Jesus, are a wonderful gift prepared by God and given to us. And so allow me just to be very practical for a moment and just encourage you, join a home group. Because if Jesus was human enough to need people close enough to him that he felt that he could be vulnerable with him, then I think we need that too. And our home groups, I believe, are your opportunity to experience what it's like to be known and loved inside the church. So let the powerful part of the work of God in your life take place because you allow the people of God to personally and intimately connect with your life. Because I think it's such a gift for us. And if Jesus needed others, then maybe I do too. And maybe I shouldn't be apologetic about that at all. The story in moment, it doesn't end with Jesus' trial and suffering. As you remember in the story, Judas arrives and betrays him with a kiss. And in that moment, it says that Jesus asked him, who do you seek? And the men, they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And when he said those words, which we remember was God's answer to Moses on a mountaintop in the Old Testament, it says that the whole of the crowd fell over. It's a reminder in this moment that Jesus is no victim, that Jesus is very much in control. There's one last thing, and you can close your Bible if you'd like, as I just remind you of it. One huge storyline we find in Gethsemane that you ought not to overlook, not just that it displays Jesus' humanity or reveals his sympathy or even opens the door for this intimacy to take place between he and I. It's that Gethsemane points us ahead to a future garden. Gethsemane points us ahead to a future garden. You need to know that this is not the final garden in Jesus' story. It's not just that his story doesn't end here, though. It's that our story doesn't either. And you might today identify with Jesus in this moment in Gethsemane where you're crying out and you're fighting for the faith that's willing to say, not my will, yours be done. But you need to know if you do, if you identify with him in this garden, then you're going to also identify with him in a future garden. See, all of humanity can be summed up in the tale of four gardens. In Eden, where Adam took a fall and was led to a tree, and that led to his death. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would take a stand, and he would go to a tree that would lead to our life. And then he'd find himself placed inside the garden tomb that could neither house or hold him. And then from the cross, he would have promised not just praying for forgiveness, but promising one of the men on either side of him who cried out to him in repentance, he promised today you will be with me in paradise. On the other side of a garden tomb, Jesus would be very much alive in the place that we call heaven.
The place that Jesus identified as being like Eden, that heaven will one day come down to earth and everything will be made right and whole again. There's a place of peace and justice that we look forward to that will reign in place of sin, sickness, suffering, and death. It's not just our great future hope, though. It's a great future secured for us by Jesus in this very moment. All of Jesus' life and miracles, his teaching, think about this. His miracles give us a glimpse into what it will be like to be with him in that future age to come, in that great garden. Whereas miracles are not the suspension of the natural order, they're really the restoration of the natural order, of the way that things were always created and meant to be. They're not just meant to be read as a challenge to my mind so much as those miracles are meant to be read as a promise to my heart that the world that you and I want is coming, where people are made well and whole, where they're fed and they're clothed, yes, but also where society as a whole functions and operates the way that God has intended and desired for it to. Each of those miracles are a promise to our heart that the world that you and I want is coming. You see, the pathway into that garden, though, first runs through this one. It first runs through Gethsemane's floors. It's not just that Jesus' story doesn't end here, though. It's that yours and mine doesn't have to either. Our story can contain more than just sorrow and pressing and pressure and brokenness. But first, we have to accept Jesus' invitation to meet him there on those floors. To meet him, yes, in vulnerability and honesty, but to meet him with faith. My friends, we're all done. But for some of you, you've come here, and you just need to know that Jesus meets you today on the floor of your suffering and sorrow. That Jesus shows up and understands and knows and cares. That that's what he whispers from this story. It echoes from this garden. And some of you, you came in and you've been crushed. You live in the place of crushing right now. The story whispers to you, I understand. For others of you, maybe even for the very first time, you need to echo Jesus' words to him. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. You need to whisper, Father, I trust you. Remember, this is not just the end of his story because there's a future garden for him, it's also that our story doesn't have to end here either. But there's an invitation that must be accepted first to meet him in Gethsemane. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.